Romans chapter two, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as that is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. In Romans chapter one, Paul has opened his letter to the church by revealing God's anger with sin. And like a trial where God is the just judge and humanity, the guilty party, Paul lays out the charges in the second chapter. Mankind is broken down into three Different groups. There's a moral group in verses 1 through 11. A pagan group or pagan people in verses 12 through 16. And now religious people in verses 17 through 29. The religious person argues for acquittal of their sin on the grounds that they know the law and they teach the law of God. Paul points out. That those who know the law and fail to do the law cannot hope for a verdict of not guilty from God. Judgment is according to God's truth in verses one through five. Judgment is according to what a person really does in their very real existence in verses six through 16. And according to the gospel of Christ in verses 17 through 29. So the passage doesn't. So much tell us how to be saved, but rather how God judges human beings according to the deeds done in this life. Paul, people receive eternal life by patiently seeking it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the first half of the chapter, Paul deals with the pagans plea of ignorance and the moral person's plea of. Of unrighteousness. Now, Paul will set his sight on the religious person's. Self-righteousness. J. Vernon McGee, who had a wonderful radio program for many, many years called Through the Bible radio program. 
He was asked about salvation and eternal security, and he famously replied, I believe in the security of the believer, and I believe in the non-security of the make-believer. I've always remembered that. Because this passage of Scripture is directed to a group of people who have a misleading confidence in their salvation based on a false foundation. John Phillips wrote, quote, The heathen is a man with a perverted religion. The hypocrite is a man with a pretended religion. The Hebrew represents the man with a powerless religion. If anyone has ever asked you the question, Are you a Christian? How did you answer that? How do you answer the question? They may use the word, are you a believer? Are you saved? Or are you a follower of Christ? And if your answer went something like this, well, I was born into a Christian home and I went to a Christian school or I was raised in a religious denomination or I know the Bible or I went to church or I was baptized into a church. You may be suffering from what might be called misleading religious confidence. You might think, well, that's your opinion. But Paul is writing the book of Romans. And as he writes the book, he has spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And Paul wants the believer to be assured of his or her salvation. But Paul also wants the delusion of false security to be ripped from the religious person. People who trust in religion are just as lost as those who have no religion at all. So what does the lawless, overt sinner have in common with the smug, self-righteous, covert sinner? Yeah, you guessed it. They're both equally lost. The religious person is equally dead in trespass and sin and need new life in Christ. And so he begins with the false assurance of origin in this this first part in in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, indeed, You are a Jew. Some have accused Paul of being a self-loathing anti-Semite. But nothing could be further from the truth. Paul knew better than most that many Jewish people counted on their Jewishness to be the source of eternal blessing and God's grace and God's Mercy, they counted on the name Jew. They counted on their genetic signature. They counted on the fact that they were a direct descendant of Abraham, that they were sons of Isaac and the children of Jacob. And this tells us something because the religious person lays claim to a name. Are you a Christian? I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I'm this, I'm that. They count on a name. And so here it's not limited to race or national origin. Divine privileges are not based on blood. 
Spiritual privileges are rarely hereditary and salvation and eternal life are never hereditary. You cannot be saved by being born into a Christian family versus a Hindu family or a Muslim family. Salvation in Christ must be acquired by personal repentance and a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear. You can't replace relationship with religion. And so Paul continues with the false assurance of knowledge or information or revelation at the end of chapter uh, 2, verse 17, all the way to verse 24. And so at the end of the verse, he says, and rest on the law and make your boast in God. The claims weren't limited to ethnic origin, but also included reliance on a book and rest on the law. In other words, I'm a Jew. So I have the revelation of God given by Moses. Here, the law refers to the first five books of Moses and I think could include the whole revelation of God. The Jews called the law the Torah. As a matter of fact, some Jewish people believed that the Torah, that if you just simply had in your possession a copy of the law, that that would save you. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have life or eternal life, but they are those which testify about me. And so resting on the law would have to include what the law reveals, what the law demands. These religious people relied on their possession of the law or the Torah as giving them a unique standing with God. So Paul's criticism isn't that you possess the law or that Jews have a special relationship as the stewards of the oracles of God. He's going to talk about that in chapter three, but rather of those who through the mere possession of the Bible thought that it would impart salvation. And think about that for a moment. When I asked, are you a Christian? And if your answer was, well, I have a Bible. Does the mere possession of a Bible put you in possession of eternal life? Of course not. When I was a little kid. I said, I thought that that might be the case. I used to have a reoccurring dream when I was a, a little kid. I remember from the time I was four years old, when I would fall asleep, I would have this dream. And in my dream, I was in this living room and on the coffee table, there was a Bible and there was this hallway and it was filled with doors. And like clockwork, every time I dreamt this dream, a monster would show up. And I would pick up the Bible off of the coffee table and I would throw it at the monster and it would disappear. And then I would have the dream again and it would disappear and I would have the dream again and it would disappear. And then one day I had the dream I threw the Bible at the monster and the monster kept coming. And then I would have the dream again and the monster kept coming. Because for me in my little Mind, the Bible was a superstitious object that made evil things go away. And for many people, that's what they think about the Bible and they think about religion. They think it's this superstitious thing that you have to make the evil go away. And Paul is making the point that the mere possession of the scriptures with 
and then divorcing them from what the scriptures speak about sin and sacrifice and covenant and blessing and moral standards and teachings and God's plan of redemption doesn't accomplish a whole lot. The person who says, I have a Bible, my next question is, do you read it? And if they answer yes, then I say, do you believe what you're reading? And if they say yes, then I have one final thing that I need to ask them. Do you actually do what it says? Having a Bible, possessing a Bible, even reading the Bible, even believing the Bible, but never actually embracing what it says and purposing in your heart to do what it says leaves you empty. The Apostle Paul points out four aspects of the revelation of the the law. Number one, what the religious Jews learned about the law in verses 17 and 18. Number two, what the Jews taught about the law in verses 19 and 20. And then what they did in light of the law in verses 21 and 22. And then number four, what they caused by breaking it in verses 23 and 24. So what the religious Jews learned about the law... Number two, what the Jews taught about the law. Number three, what they did in light of the law. And then number four, what they caused by breaking it. So what does it mean when he says, and rest in the law and make your boast in God? I think it means that they took great pride in their works of charity and the work that they did among the poor and the needy. Or they make their boast in God in the sense of, I believe in God. We go back to my original question. Are you a Christian? I believe in God. James would later write, the devil believes in God and trembles. Does simple belief in God mean that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus is in your heart and in your life and that your future is secure? Probably not. In the next few verses, Paul will challenge the notion that the name Jew and the book Bible and works add up to salvation. By the way, is it wrong to boast in the Lord? Not necessarily. The psalmist wrote, I will boast. I will make my boast in you, O Lord. The Old Testament says that I will Make my boast in the Lord and the humble will hear thereof and be glad. Paul isn't criticizing the person who believes in God or makes their boast in God. But rather, Paul is critiquing and criticizing the person who trusts self-righteousness or religious privilege. Now, let's pause for a moment and consider the claims of the religious person Who thinks that religious privilege is all that's necessary? Number one, the claim of a name. Spiritual privileges are hereditary. Number two, the claim of a document. The mere possession of the Bible guarantees protection. Remember, Paul's argument includes the fact that it's not having the biblical revelation that provides privilege, but rather it's honoring and obeying the revelation. And number three, the claim of a deity. We have a God. Our God is the God of the Bible. And for many Jews, Jehovah wasn't simply the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac or the God of Jacob. God was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and not of the Jews. 
excuse me, of the Gentiles. Now, I need you to understand something. It's not true. It is not true. It is not true that all Jews believed God was only the God of the Jews. That would be stretching it. And that would not be historically accurate because the careful reader of the Bible knows that the Bible repeatedly claims that the God of the Bible is the God of the whole earth. So is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God that's revealed in the Bible, is he the God of everyone on the planet Earth? Yes, there's not two gods or three gods. Some people might cry out to a God or specify a God or gravitate to a God. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear, even though people don't know that God or deny that God or falsify his character, there's still only one God. So the claim of a name, the claim of a document, the claim of a deity. And now number four comes the claim of specific knowledge in verse 18 and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And so he's going to add some more claims. The claim of specific knowledge. Knowing his will, they claim that they know God's will. So, again, when you ask the question, are you a Christian? Do you know and love the Lord? And the person's response is, I know what God's will is. Well, what is God's will? That sinners turn to the Savior and that Jesus is the Lord. Have you turned to the Savior? You may know God's will, but actually, do you embrace it? Have you embraced it? So he says, Not only is there a specific knowledge of God's will, but then there's the claim of discernment at the end of verse um, 18 and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. This kind of claim of discernment and approve the things that are excellent means they pretended to be skilled in moral problems with the ability to discern between right and wrong. Are you a Christian? I know the difference between right and wrong. I know the difference between good and evil. And then the claim of specialized knowledge being instructed out of the law. And then in verse 20, look what it says. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. The claims just keep on coming so far. What are the claims? The claim of a name, number one, the claim of a document, number two, the claim of a deity, number three, the claim of specific knowledge, number four, the claim of discernment, number five, the claim of specialized knowledge, number six, and now number seven, the claim of leadership and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. This is the claim of self-exalting claim. This is the self-exalting claim of, of pretending or saying that not only do you know all of those things, but you know how to point people in the right direction. You should go to church. You should read your Bible. Really? Do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? But here, look what it's saying. They suggests that they are spiritual showers of the way, pointers of the path. 
But Paul is going to make the claim that it isn't sufficient that you just simply point people in the right direction. He's going to ask the question, are you going in the right direction? We have to lead the way. But the truth is that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. And so how could you be a shower of the way if you don't show the person to the person who's leading the way? And so not only is there the claim of leadership, look at the end of verse 19. There's the claim of being a light giver, a light to those who are in darkness. And it is true. It is true. It is true that the revelation of God and the light came through Jewish sources. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Every single spiritual heritage that Christians embrace and enjoy come from Jewish roots. They come from Hebrew sources. Our prophets are their prophets. Our songs are their songs. Our Bible is their Bible. And Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. But he's a Gentile Messiah as well. What's odd and what's troubling wasn't the possession of the light. It was, did you see the light when you received the light? In other words, can you imagine it's one thing to have the light or possess the light, but did you embrace it? Jesus is the revealed light. And I want you to think about this for a moment. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I'm the light who's come into the world. Do you know what that means? That means that a Christian isn't the light. All a Christian can do is reflect the light. The sun gives light. The truth is, the reason why any of us have any light in a a true, in in a physical sense, is that a real sun really shines and provides light to the planet. And a real Jesus really provides light. And so guess what? The only light we have is the light that Jesus gives us. And the only light that is worth reflecting is the light that Jesus shines on us. And so guess what? A reflector is only good if it's cleaned. And a reflector is only good if it's turned toward the light which you wish to reflect. And so that means that there has to be something different about our heart. And the direction. And then there's the claim of education. Look at verse 20. Look what it says. It says, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So number nine, they make the claim of being an educator. Teaching makes many demands. Some of you are teachers. I know because you told me. You teach at a university, you teach at a college, you teach a high school, you teach a middle school or an elementary school, or maybe you're a homeschooler, but you're a teacher, you're an instructor. 
Let me ask you a question. Does the science teacher or the math teacher or the philosophy teacher owe it to his or her students to be accurate in what they teach? I think the answer is yes. What about the Bible teacher? Do you think that the Bible teacher has some kind of responsibility to accurately teach the Bible? I think that the answer is yes. What about the person who claims to have the oracles of God? What about the person who, t- who claims that they are a teacher of the truth? Now, you would hope that the philosophy teacher has some sort of philosophical outlook. You would hope that a math teacher has some proficiency in math. But doesn't the Bible teacher have some obligation to live the promises and the instructions of Christ? I think that the answer is yes, and that becomes the whole point. The message is often measured by the messenger, the person who knows and loves and teaches the way of truth and teaches God's word, doesn't have just the responsibility to provide exhortation, but also example. Because the truth is, the truth is, But the moment that you claim to become a a teacher, you have this amazing responsibility to actually live out what you teach. And then there's the claim of maturity at the end of the verse. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. When Paul adds, which have the form of knowledge and the truth in the law, doesn't this passage sound familiar to some of you who are familiar with the New Testament? Do you remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Christianity is a set of propositions and assertions of statements of knowledge and of fact. Christianity doesn't claim to be one man's opinion. Christianity claims that a real person, Jesus, came in time and space in history, remarkably living a perfect life and dying on a real cross and really rising from the dead. But the life and the death and the resurrection aren't just a matter of historical curiosity, but a life and a death and a resurrection. That's linked to something. And that is, of course, the problem of humanity. Christian doctrine, Christian teaching is a form of knowledge energized and empowered by the supernatural agency of God and by his Holy Spirit. The way I want you to think about this, rivers and waterways are fluid. In your mind, imagine a gigantic waterway or a river and it comes rushing towards you and the fluid can be blocked with cement or with wood. So if you dam a river, you can harness the water to produce electricity or electric energy, and it can provide valuable services. And so many people are content to allow the word of God to wash over them and the truth of God to wash over them. But they're not willing 
to allow the word of God to transform their life. To be different from the inside out. So what do the sins of the pagan Gentiles in chapter 1 have in common with the sins of the religious Jews in chapter 2? Sin is equally offensive to God. Whether it comes from pagan Gentiles or whether it comes from religious Jews, pagan sin, Jewish sin, ignorant sin, willful sin. In the first chapter, we might label this chapter in Romans perversion. In the second chapter, we might label this chapter pride. Which is worse, perversion or pride? If you're into those kinds of things, some people might point to perversion. Some people might point to pride. But whoever wins the argument, you know what comes out? The reality that both are equally wrong, sinful, disqualifying. You know, there's a great peril in being religious without being redeemed. We're in danger of embracing a cultural Christianity that opts for moral pronouncements but have no messianic power. We're in danger of opting for a Christianity that has more in common with social services than repentance and regeneration. Paul addresses the claim of the mere professor, religious people making religious professions. The claims are what the people said. And now Paul will bring up the counterclaims. What people really do. Here's the claim. Religion is enough to save me. Here's the counterclaim. If that's true, then you don't understand what religion really is. And you don't even understand what the demands of God are. You don't understand about the demands of reality. Paul is going to point out what you've always known. That lip service is different from life service. You've always known that. You've always known that you can say what you want, but the truth is how you live is going to tell so much more. Paul doesn't do well with the person who's all lip and no life, or in Texas, who's all hat and no cattle. In verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? In verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written, Paul lights the fuse, just like 4th of July. Have you ever lit a fuse and you watch it burn? And as you watch it burn, as it gets closer and closer to the bomb, your eyes get bigger and bigger. Because one of two things is going to happen, an explosion or a dud. He explodes the false idea 
that there can be a religious confession or a religious profession apart from possession and performance, words without works, clouds without water. You can be thoroughly biblically orthodox and surprisingly dead. A biblical, scriptural, orthodox faith in Paul's theology always leads to a new species of life, which in turn produces life, which in turn produces fruit, which in turn produces a reproduction of the fruit. Is there anything in your life that you can point to as fruit? I heard the story of a little boy who was <laughs> desperately trying to eat a gigantic apple. And the apple was very nearly as big as his head. And an older man watched as the younger boy struggled to try and sink his teeth into the apple without much success. And the old man said to the boy, is that too much apple for you? And the little boy looked up and he said, not enough boy for the apple. I think that sometimes people see religion that way. As a great big piece of fruit that they're trying to sink their teeth into. So how does Paul deal with the religious moralist? Who boasts or makes claims to religious superiority. He presents counterclaims. To those who boast in religious privilege or religious position. The bottom line for Paul is, do you practice what you preach? So here's counterclaim number one in verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You that preach that a man shouldn't steal, do you steal? Paul is, in effect, saying to the religious moralists who made the claim, okay, you say that you have a Bible. You say you understand its content. Do you actually do what it says? We've already established that teaching always increases responsibility. Teaching doesn't simply rest with communicating the moral content of the teaching, but living the moral content of the message. For the Christian teacher, it means living a life punctuated by grace and mercy and love. And no wonder Paul purposes to preach Jesus and him alone, crucified for the remission of sins. No wonder Paul points people to Jesus and glories in the cross. And no wonder Paul counts his own life as dead to sin and alive to Christ. No wonder Paul preaches grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Does that mean that Paul divorces himself from the content of the message of the gospel? No. There is, number one, the counterclaim of practice. Number two, the counterclaim of purity. Look at verse 22. You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Roy Lauren writes wonderfully, and I quote, the greatest evidence of a true gospel is a pure life proceeding from that gospel. 
The greatest vindication of the truth of our faith is the purity of our life. For as one has said, thou thyself be true, if thou the truth wouldst teach, unquote. It's one thing to say that the gospel calls us to a pure life. And then it's another thing to live that life. And say, the Bible says that I should be faithful to my wife. The Bible says that I should be faithful to my husband. What's going to motivate you to be faithful to your husband or your wife? Is it going to be because the Bible says so? Or is it going to be because you really love your wife? You really love your husband. And because you love him or you love her, the thing that is motivating your behavior is your deep love for and respect for and commitment to them. There is the claim of practice and there is the claim of purity. But if you look at the end of verse 22, there's another claim. It's the claim of sanctity. You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? Oh, no. What does Paul mean by that? The phrase literally means, do you plunder or rob temples? And some of you are, might, might be thinking, Whew, thank God I dodged a bullet. There's no temple to Diana. There's no temple to Artemis. There's no temple to Jupiter or Pan. And so the chances of me going into a pagan temple and ripping them off are pretty remote. But we have new temples. They're called Target and Walmart. We go in there. And it is the worship of materialism. We might think whether this is historical or literal. How are we to think? What does it mean to steal from temples? Again, I'm going to suggest something to you. Let's put it in a context that hopefully will make sense. Were there other temples other than pagan temples? Yeah, there was the temple in Jerusalem. Were there places of worship? Places of sacrifice? Places where the truth was being taught. Let's just, for purposes of discussion, say there were. It may have something to do with something way more sinister than just going to Walmart or Target and, and shoplifting. It may be a charge of religious racketeering. In a broad sense, we might think of this as pillaging of sacred things for personal gain. And I suspect that that's exactly what it means. Paul is talking about practice and purity and sanctity. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Are there those who reject Jesus and the gospel because so-called ministers have abused their trust and the gospel and they use the church and the gospel as a form of religious racketeering? I think that the answer is yes. There are pastors, I hate to admit it, who don't even for a moment believe that the gospel is true and that the Bible is true. And you would think that they would have enough integrity to quit their job and go sell shoes or do something honest. 
they don't even for a moment believe that the Bible is true. And they don't even for a moment believe that Jesus is Lord. And they don't even for a moment believe that you can experience forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they engage in religious racketeering. But sometimes so do we. We use religion as a means of gain rather than as a platform of purity, truth, and sanctity. And he also gives the counterclaim of honor. Look what it says in verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So what about the person who claims to be legal in letter? But illegal in life. Is God honored by both a holy life and an unholy life? That's Paul's question. Are you zealous for Christ and Christianity? Do you want them and urge people to live a holy life and then refuse to do so yourself? Do you want people to believe like you believe, but you would be embarrassed and ashamed if they followed you for a single day and discovered how you really live your life? We who put the measuring line of orthodoxy on essential doctrines... Do we put the same exacting standards on life and practice? We who sing holy, holy, holy on Sunday. Do we sing express yourself on Monday? Do we sing boogie nights on Saturday? Do we sing, love the one you're with on Friday? What would your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers do if they came to your church on Sunday and then followed you in your witness on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday And then he gives the false assurance of religious ritual. Look what it says in verses 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. For the Jews, circumcision was the mark of religious observance. It was an external thing in the religious culture of Judaism. It wasn't a medical procedure claiming benefits for personal hygiene for the observant Jew. It was proof of covenant. But for some, it was way more than proof of covenant. It became the mark of religious superiority. So the Jew claimed it as a distinction of great merit. For some, they thought that the act placed them in a class, that there was two classes of people favored by God and unfavored by God. And so much so that they would call themselves circumcised and they would call everyone else uncircumcised. So does circumcision have value? Paul writes, yes, if you keep the law. But what if you break the law? Here's Paul's argument. For the lawbreaker, religious ritual has no value. 
What value has religious ritual? None, if you don't observe any of the tenets of the gospel. Let's put it closer to home. What value has baptism? None, if you don't identify with Christ. If you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you identify with Jesus in his life, in his love, in his resurrection from the dead, then what value has it? It has great value. But it, does it have any value if you yourself don't live your life as if Jesus matters, that his death matters and his resurrection matters? No. What value has the Lord's Supper? What value has baptism? Paul points out that the Lord's Supper and baptism has great meaning and great significance. But he also points out that religious hypocrisies have no value. You can take communion and you can engage in a religious ritual, but it has no value apart from a connection with Christ. If our abuse of religious rites or rituals, that's what nullifies their value. For their value isn't in the rite or the ritual. Their value lies in their ability to impart life. And guess what? If your religious ritual isn't imparting life, then it has no value. If you come to our church... And you sit in that chair and you listen to the sermon. But you've never experienced what it means to know and love Jesus. If it doesn't impart life, then you'll go out the door as dead as you came in. Dead in your mind, dead in your heart. That's the point that he's making. Religious ritual shouldn't fill your heart with the sense of assurance Well, I went to church. Why, I got baptized. Look what he says in verse 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Verse 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? How do you explain the person who doesn't have a Bible, who doesn't go to church. But he or she lives their life as if Jesus is real and as if salvation is true and as if love matters and grace matters. What about the person who doesn't have a Bible? How does God look at the man or the woman who has no Bible, yet their life conforms to goodness and grace and and love and selflessness and goodness and decency and they fulfill the law? And then you stack them up against the person who has the written law and refuses to obey it. One of the great, great tragedies of the modern church is that there are unbelievers, your neighbors and your friends who live godly and decent lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe more godly and decent than me and more godly and decent than you. So what about the person? Who falls into the trap of substituting the external for the internal What happens to the person who possesses a Bible, but violates it and nullifies it by the way that they live? 
Paul argues it's not having the Bible that counts with God. It's obeying the Bible. What about the person, again, who falls into the trap of substituting religious externals for something internal in your life? Does baptism and communion have value apart from true life and Christ? Can we substitute baptism and communion for spiritual regeneration and spiritual communion? The answer is no. Because all that means is you got wet. All that means is that you took a piece of bread. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, from God. Here's Paul's argument. Race and religion can never serve as a substitute for personal purity and inward sincerity. And a Christian isn't a Christian who's a Christian outwardly. But inwardly. It isn't the mark on the outside. It's the marks on the inside. Chuck Swindoll writes, Religion cannot take away sin. Only Christ can. Depending upon one's religiosity... For salvation is like skydiving from a plane with a sack of cement for a parachute. No matter how much you try, it won't prevent death. I'm going to argue, this is not Chuck Swindoll, this is Gino now. I'm going to argue parachuting with a sack of cement not only is not going to guarantee you life, it's going to guarantee you death. Christianity is trusting Christ, not yourself. The very basics of the gospel are that the Son of God became a man and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead in order to provide salvation for the sinner. And the only way that anyone can get this salvation is by exercising faith in Christ plus nothing. The religious Jew had the external mark on the flesh to testify or evidence religious excellence. So what do you have? What is the mark of religious excellence? What is the spiritual mark? What if I said to you that it's always internal? And that it's always Invisible. Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a mark. There's a stamp. There's an authenticating mark of a divine life which takes place on the inside. But also there's another mark. It's a stamp that we might call not the Bible or even the word of God. But loving the Bible and loving the word of God and living and loving what the Bible says, being born again, it says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. There is a mark that takes place in our spirit and there's a mark that takes place in our mind because 
when we experience the genuine spiritual birth, there's a kind of biology in the Bible that kicks in. And the kind of biology that kicks in when you experience the new birth in Christ, there is the mark of life. If any man is in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. You see, for the Christian, it isn't what your Bible looks like on the outside. But the meaningful presence of the Bible in your heart and how that's lived out on the inside. So the Christian, it's the mark of service. And the mark of love. But it's also the mark of obedience. We're doers of the word and not just hearers only. This is what... John wrote in chapter 13, verse 55, he's writing the words of Jesus. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. That you go to church, that you have a Bible, that you sing songs and you raise your hands at just the right moment. Or is there something on the inside that begins to display itself? On the outside. So the mark of the Christian. Not external. Internal. By the way. There's external marks. There's internal marks. But whatever the marks are. They have to impart life. It's the kind of life. That results in freedom and joy and service and humility. That's authenticity. Now, Paul is going to talk about the advantage of the Jew makes his condemnation even greater in chapter three. But we'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. We're back to the original question. Are you a Christian? Are you a current follower of Christ? Have you experienced life? What is it that you're trusting in? Is it religious belief or religious service or religious observance? Have you substituted religion for a relationship? Have you substituted doing Christian things for Christ? Heavenly Father, we pray that our lives would be marked by our love for and commitment to the person of Jesus. And our love for and commitment to one another. Lord, I pray for that person who no longer wishes to be religious. They are done with trying to find you on their own. To love you apart from Christ. To live a life apart from being born again. Lord, I pray for that person that they would experience what it means to know you and to love you from the inside out. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing, You Are My King. And that's our declaration.